Hi, and welcome to episode 35 of the Dr. Coffee podcast. Thank you so much for your support. By simply downloading or listening to the podcast, you've been a part in making this South Africa's top locally produced podcast on the Apple Podcasts and Spotify charts in the medicine category, an incredible 15,000 plays and counting. And while this is an honor and achievement in its own right, there is still a lot more we hope to achieve in offering motivation, encouragement, education, and insight into all things medicine for junior doctors and medical students in our beautiful country. I'd like to take a moment to direct you briefly to our Linktree URL, which you can find in the show notes for this episode, as well as in the bio of our Instagram page at drcoffeeza. There you'll find links to all our episodes, some of the collaborators we've been working with, as well as a Google form you can complete if you're interested in working with the Dr. Coffee podcast. This can be in a number of ways, whether it be collaborating on an event at your medical school with a student society or interest group, featuring guests in episodes or special segments, or if you'd like to advertise on the podcast with pre-roll, mid-roll or post-roll ads. If you believe, like we do, in the potential and talents of South Africa's junior doctors and future doctors, and would like to work together to make a positive difference, hit us up via the Google form and we'll be in touch soon. The Dr. Coffee podcast was recently featured on Feedspot's global list of the top 45 motivational podcasts for students. This list, I've been told, is based on a combination of social media reach, podcast audience on major podcast platforms, and the amount of people sharing and interacting with the content. The Dr. Coffee podcast appears at number 24 on this list. And while making lists like this, or any accolade for that matter, is certainly not the goal, it's really encouraging to know that our target audience, our beloved coffee beans, are feeling helped and inspired. Thank you to Feedspot for inclusion in this list, which you can find a link to in the show notes for this episode. And now the last thing before we dive into the consultant guest interview for this episode, which is probably the most important, and that is to remind us of the annual Crazy Socks for Docs initiative, which is all about shining a light on mental health of doctors. Multiple studies have demonstrated that not only do our South African doctors have a higher prevalence of depression than our general population, they also have a higher prevalence of burnout than doctors in other countries, with a higher incidence of emotional exhaustion and depersonalization. These same studies also show that due to the stigma associated with mental health disorders, denial or just plain lack of awareness, South African doctors with depression or burnout do not seek help or treatment. The WardWorks app and Crazy Socks for Docs are on a mission to change that. This is an awareness campaign to highlight the challenges on the mental health of doctors and to show support. To encourage conversations, break the stigma and remind you that you aren't alone. And it's okay to not be okay. The first Friday in June marks this annual day of awareness, which this year falls on the 2nd of June, 2023. That gives you roughly two weeks from the original airing of this podcast to pick out your bright or mismatched socks to wear on the day and spread awareness of mental health of doctors. Wardworks are also giving away 100 pairs of brilliant socks to junior doctors across the country. That's 10 teams of 10 doctors. All you need to do is head to their Instagram page where you'll find out how to nominate your team and hopefully win yourselves some lacquer goodies while also backing this phenomenal initiative. 
And if you don't win socks for your team, the amazing news is that the very cool Wardworks socks will be available to purchase as well. They look super cool with the Wardworks avatars designs all over them and would make a great gift to your clinical partner or teammate to remind them that you have their back and are always there for them. Special thanks to the Wardworks team for the work that they've done in putting this together and may you be richly blessed because of it. And just a reminder again, you can find links to Wardworks' link tree in the show notes for this episode on whatever platform you're listening on. So now to this week's Coffee with Consultants feature. And my guest this week is Professor Georgie Mercier, an Associate Professor at the University of Pretoria. Prof. Georgie has experience as an emergency medicine doctor with International SOS, that is flying doctors involved in medical rescue and transportation across borders and overseas, as well as extensive experience as a lecturer of medical students and a scientific researcher. She was enthusiastically recommended by another consultant guest on the podcast, Professor Ryan Blumenthal from episode 24 of the Dr. Coffee podcast. Prof. Georgie has a really engaging and interesting journey in medicine, as well as a number of key insights to share with junior doctors and medical students. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, and I'm sure you will as well. And so, without any further ado, here is my interview with Professor Georgie Mercier. Welcome to the Dr. Coffee podcast, Professor Georgie Mercier. Thank you very much for inviting me here, Simon. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast finally. Professor Ryan Blumenthal is going to be so happy that you, we've actually got you for the interview. So welcome, and we're going to be doing a deep dive into your adventures in medicine and many uh, accomplishments that you've had and things you've learned along the way. But with all of our guests, what we start out with is your journey through your junior doctor years, your medical training from medical school, your internship and community service years. So maybe you can start there, and I believe you have an interesting backstory and an interesting path through, me through medicine. So tell us about that. Thank you, Simon. Well, I think it's actually the journey more than the outcome that's the interesting part of this interview. The outcome may be not as successful as many of your other specialists on paper, but the journey is one that I think a lot of junior doctors enjoy because, um, as I've said before, we have this huge pressure on ourselves, type A personalities, and we think we need to have it all sorted out immediately. And it's okay that we don't, and I think that's an important thing. So I am probably the most reluctant doctor you've ever come across. I did not want to do medicine. Wow. Um, I kept getting accepted, so I got accepted after school, and I tore it up in a complete fit of rage. I wanted to do journalism and drama and English at Rhodes, and that was my dream. And everybody frowned at me and said, somebody with your marks and your ability, you can't go and do a BA, you know. <laughs> You know, most people have the reverse problem, eh? Well, you know, it takes all types. <laughs> so I was quite determined not to get into medicine. I got in, um, tore it up. And the deal was that if I got into the most difficult thing to get into in South Africa, which at that time was veterinary science, believe it or not, was more difficult than medicine, then I would go into veterinary science. Yes, because there's fewer vets. There's only 90 yeah, places. 100 places yeah. in the whole country. Yeah. So that's it. And if then I was going to do veterinary science, and then if not, then I was going to be left alone to go to Rhodes and do my artistic expression of myself. So I set about in matric a huge campaign to not get into vet school, not realizing at the time in my naivety in the early 90s 
that you get on in your grade nine, oh, sorry, standard nine, grade 11 marks, and you just need the sub-minimum for matric. So I got into bed science and medicine, which I tore up, and bed <laughs> science. And so off I took wow. myself up to Pretoria, very English girl, very liberal girl from the Natal Midlands, took myself off to the University of Pretoria, and it was still, still apartheid. So you can imagine it was a bit of a conflict of interests and a conflict of expression wow. for quite some time. I did my first year of vet science and just was not cut out to be a vet. So mm. I think it's difficult getting into vet science, try leaving it. Wow. Um, so did I left vet science. And by that stage, I had done a couple of courses in biochemistry and genetics and um, science which is part of first year vet science. And I realized that this is fun. This is a huge amount of fun. So I sat there at the end of my first year, didn't have a cooking clue what to do now. I didn't want to do vet science, didn't really know what else to do. Sort of thought, well, I'll just finish my BSc and I will take it from there. So I did that, finished my BSc. Really, I'm a third year, really loved biochemistry, um, immunology, genetics, all those type of things. Really, really great. So I stayed and I did a bit of zoology and as a holiday dog did some game ranging and you know, those type of things. So there was aspects of veterinary medicine that were appealing, but as a whole, it was just not for you? No, I think I used to read those James Herriot books about you know, the vet in the Cornwall County and it sounded so romantic and it was very far from reality. Wow. <laughs> so um, it's... It's a lot to do with the naivety of many of us go mm. into a profession when we're quite young. So then I did my honours in biochemistry and genetics and just actually started falling around because what else does one do? Didn't know what else to do. And was about to start my master's. So I have, what, I, what the gift of this was, is I had the most incredible education at the time in science with the most phenomenal professors who taught me how to think. Their third year was quite a challenge but they taught me how to think scientifically and laterally, and it's mm. been the biggest gift of my life. So did my honours also, it expanded my ability to think and question and reason and look at the world through the more of a sort of a logical, rational lens, which was very useful for a wannabe artist-y type of person. <laughs> um, so you've got the left and the right brain now. Quite balanced. <laughs> at least that's what I tell myself. <laughs> um, then I... Uh, did the, the honours year, which I really enjoyed. I was going to fall into a master's and my prof actually, you know, thank goodness, there are people in this world that you meet mm -hmm. that are amazing and they'll change your course. Um, that is people that look at you and they see you and you don't even necessarily know that. You, you know, this was a really, it was an A-rated professor. He was amazing. I didn't even think uh, he knew I existed, but here he called me and he says, Georgie, you know, you're not... Is a, a proper lab person. You're a people person out there. You're extrovert, you're gregarious. Mm. I need you to really think about what you want to do with life and where you're going to. Sure. And he gave me the biggest gift. He said, you can come back. Your place in Masters and your bursary is here. Yes. So he gave me a safety to come back yes. to, which having worked my way through my own degrees, not being supported, was a big thing to me. And uh, I went off and I helped my friend open a riding school in Sun Valley, and then I was riding internationally, um, horse riding internationally for South Africa. And then I landed... All at the same time, all at accomplishing the same time. all this with your studies. <laughs> all at the same time. Then I landed up teaching biology at Parktown Boys High School, which was a superb adventure. Those boys were amazing. They were so bright and funny and curious, and 
I ended up being a rowing mistress. It sounds so dodgy, but I was <laughs> a rowing. So I knew nothing about rowing. And here I'm floating around these dams, Red Plot Dam, teaching them how to scull and long distance uh, running and hockey coaching and had a lovely time. And as life does, it usually comes to this. You float along and then an event will happen and then you have to re-examine yourself and your path and your future. Sure. And that's sort of happened with a personal thing that collapsed my life to a large degree. And I realized that maybe I must go into medicine because it kept coming back. Every time I had to make a new decision, I haven't mentioned that before, but at the end of my VSC, it came up again, reapplied, I tore it up again. End of my honors, reapplied, tore it up again. Now we are a year later. And was this always at the University of Pretoria? Was it at Pitts? I got it. Actually, my, my family are traditional Cape Tonians, so okay. they all went to UCT. Mm. And my first two exceptions, acceptances were at UCT. And they they are all doctors? or No, no, not at all. Okay. Um, no, not at all. Okay. But they're just, they're alumni yeah. of UCT. Okay. So. Mm. I thought maybe there was like family pressure to be a doctor. There was somehow. Because of people who have, you know, sometimes you grow up in a yeah. legacy of, yeah. of uh, medical doctors mm. and they say, you must be a doctor. No, strange enough, exactly the opposite. My mother was a complete anti-normal medicine person. So anti-vaxxer, anti-everything. I didn't have any. I had no antibiotics, pain medicine, vaccination till I hit med school. And it's the first time in my life. So they were all a little bit disappointed <laughs> that wow. I chose normal medicine and actually vaccinate. Horror. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they Anyway, so it's it's... And the idea of the story is to show that there's not a normal path. So then my whole life collapsed and the medicine came up again and I got accepted again. I went to an interview. My friend came and collected me, went to the interview, which then I had at Tux. I went in shorts and slops and a t-shirt and I sat there belligerently and they asked me, why do you want to do medicine? I said, well, I don't. (laughs) Anyway, and then they asked very contentious questions like, what do you think about genetic engineering I'm, i think it's fantastic you know yeah, <laughs> because questions. you've you've just come mm. from that world you've seen the tip of the iceberg but they you know we're quite conservative back then and they accepted me and then i tore it up again i tore it up through it in the bin i said i'm not doing this then as i said then my life collapsed and i think it was the february of that year and we all start we all know taxis start on the first week and you have to accept by february and i called and i said okay where do i go where do i go i give up surrender i've got two medicine and they said, no, don't be ridiculous. You haven't accepted your place. It's gone a long time ago. Sure. And then I heard the lady, she said, I'll check. She's Bob, my place was there. So I gave up. Well, I didn't give up my jobs. I then worked all my jobs that I was working. I was still teaching and I was coaching and I was working at a vet after hours. And I started first year medicine with no idea how I was going to do this or pay for it either. Mm. And then the journey of medicine began. So what was it like at, the, at that early point of starting medicine? I mean, you sound like you started it reluctantly, but you obviously went to class. And what was it like trying to keep all of those balls up in the air? And was there ever, ever anyone saying, listen, you're taking on too much. This is a very unrealistic timescale to try and fit everything into. I think the only people that were offended were the the deans at the time who thought that my all should be medicine and I shouldn't have everything else happening. They mm. were the only offended people. But mm. other than that, I think that's a crazy thing to, to say to somebody. I mean, mm. you know, 
bite the thing and chew as hard as you can. <laughs> and also in in first year of medicine, right? As a student, you think you have no time, but you have so you have much so time. much time. Yeah, you have so much time. Yeah. It does get busier as you go, but in the beginning yeah. part of your degree, so much time. Yeah, you really have a lot of extra time. And another thing is what did help me a lot was what I'd learned in science. So that ability to think made me have the capacity to study a lot less than somebody, say, directly from school. So I could work things out quite quickly. And I was always quite competitive, but I never had that drive to give up the rest of my life to come first. So mm. I always sort of sat top 10 in my class. And that was all right for me. I was never first or second or third. <laughs> Being anywhere near the top of the class is an achievement. <laughs> My favorite joke is the one where they said, you know what they call the person who finishes bottom of their class in med school? Doctor. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. And we always encourage people to do their best, but you know, take, take comfort in if you're not top of your class. It's okay. There's some great consultants who... I think my drive was the bursaries because I oh, thanked really? myself. So yes. my that was my drive more than the first in class. It was the I need the money, but you know money it's important. <laughs> so so here's another question: mm. Do you think it's harder to study now or study back then? And I, and I want to like um, explain it this way: If you were studying medicine in the '90s, this was before the internet was mm. really taking mm. off. Sure, there was a lot of knowledge, but mm. you had to actually go to a library, open a book, and find it. Mm. Now the information comes to everywhere. you. It's everywhere. And we know that we're generating so much new information. Not all of it is high-quality information, mm. but we're generating new information every single second. So which is harder, to go and sit down and read a book or to sift through the, this volumes of information nowadays? An interesting question. So I think if you look at your... If we look at neurophysiology, you know, we've got to bring the physiology into it for reasons, you know, you'll know. <laughs> but if you look at the formation of deep learning and the synaptic pathways, real learning comes from you synthesizing it. So I think the easy accessibility of knowledge is probably not the best for long-term knowledge mm. at the moment. So it's easy to get your hands on it and to have an easy explanation, but it's taking, for us, it was a textbook. We didn't get any other supplementary things like slides or whatever. We had to take the textbooks. We went to class. There was nothing. There were no PowerPoints where you had to write like hell uh, as much as one can. And you get sentence, sentence, and it goes dot, 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 dot when you run out. And then you get together and you're like, did you get this? No. And then we've got to do the textbooks and then make your own summaries. In that process of sifting the information and then putting it into a summary is actually where the learning occurs. Mm. That's where the deep learning occurs. And because... I give my students lecture slides. They get the summary, so they don't need to do it. And I think it's actually more difficult, believe mm. it or not. Long term, short term, no, it's easier. And the it's easier to cram for the test. Yeah. Short term gratifications. Then long term, then when I see the new doctors coming out and I ask them principles, like why have you just done this? And their eyes grow big and they can't remember the principles of it because of it. So. And you can tell me, but that's not the academic. And I'm like, no, not entirely, because you need to think about what you're doing to your patient. And I did a lot of aviation medicine. And when you're, you know, 30,000 feet above the earth in an airplane, it's not that easy to phone a friend. <laughs> it's up to you. <laughs> or to Google it. Yeah. Or to Google it. You don't have that. So it's about you being able to think through the physiology and the pathophysiology and the pharmacology, all those basics, yes. together with your clinical skills to give you the best outcome from your patients and to allow you to have that dynamic thought process. Of course, not everybody wants to land up in that type of situation sure. doing extreme medicine. Um, 
and most places where you are, you do have quite a bit of backup, I suppose. So it depends on what your aims are as a, as a doctor. So you've already answered because I was going to ask, how has that informed your teaching and changed the way that you teach the class? But now we live in the era of the flip classroom as well. Yeah. So how do you see medical education transforming? Because traditionally medicine has been quite slow. Uh, it's a large vessel to turn. It is. It takes a long time for the world, uh, for the for medicine to catch up with the world, because the world is advancing so rapidly. Mm. So, where do you see medical medical education going in the next five to ten years? That's a very interesting question, and there are a lot of theories on this. I still come back to the fact, and it's not a popular opinion, that this whole idea of a flipped classroom and all these fancy type of applications of learning which are great can only work once you have the basics in place i might be wrong that's my opinion mm. but to go to a group discussion where you get a patient and say work this out and you don't know the basics it's like me saying please write an essay if you don't know the alphabet sure. so i think it's a really great thing to do once you have the basics so physiology anatomy pathology must be in place and once one understands those so those have been sort of the first 18 months if you've got your alphabet then you can start writing sentences paragraphs essays books line upon line precepts upon precepts so yeah. i think the whole I, I i think one needs to find that balance because otherwise i think patients are the people get a bit lost i was doing chempath at fits where i was doing facilitating the game discussions mm -hmm. And if somebody came with a bit of a science background, like they'd done physiology, anatomy, and those type of things, they were right. But a lot of people come from completely different backgrounds. Humanities and Humanities things, and things. Yeah. And then they get like, here's, here's, here's your patient. Work out your patient. And the, where does one even start? So I, I found that didn't work terribly successful. And I got to sixth year and... Um, I got a question about what is the hepatic portal system oh. like and those type of questions and i was like this is scary <laughs> but that's again the, the lack of basics and we're all very bright so we'll all pick up on little things and we can put things together but that deep understanding i think it's important to have the groundwork that's my opinion it's not necessarily the popular one or what's being implemented but that's my opinion mm. but it's good that you you framed it in saying you know why you had on that route and and explained the adventure that led you to medicine so i think no one would would listen to that and be like oh you know there's no experience underneath that was that there's actual experience there that has informed that opinion so um right so you obviously qualified as a doctor that was the beginning i did <laughs> like, in the meantime i was still riding i was riding for south africa and got my south african colors for horse riding and i was still working i worked myself through my whole entire degree it's incredible so anybody that says there's no way of doing it. They must look again. There's always a way of doing something. So don't, yeah. I think that's my thing. Don't let anybody say no to you. If there's something you want, there's a way one can do it. Yeah. And sometimes it does take a bit of faith and it takes that leap of faith. And somehow the universe or something will come up and, and help you. Doors open. People are amazing. It's incredible. So it's about not giving up. So I did, I did qualify, and then my major priority, believe it or not, was my horse riding. So when it came to internship, I had no, uh, how does one say, these special needs that I could put into 
stay in this area. I wasn't mm -hmm. married. I didn't have a property. I didn't have all those type of qualifications. So, so I came to internship and I think I got third rounded mm -hmm. and I got sent. I actually don't know where, somewhere deep rural that I don't even know the name of the place to, but I decided I will have none of this. I phoned a friend they had a friend in the military and I rocked up at one mill oh, wow. on the first day and I said, Did So it all goes through the process. You decided the military hospital Windmill. would be better than doing deep rural. Well, because of my riding, I couldn't ride. I was I was going to I had a fantastic horse that was going to go all the way top. And I didn't if I went somewhere else I'd have to give that up. So it's like mm. <laughs> Um so I landed, I arrived at one mall. I said, has anybody not turned up for internship? And lo and behold, there were two people that hadn't rocked up. So they gave me the one post. So I landed up on my internship in one mall, sure. which was at that stage still a really good hospital. I don't know what it's like. Now. I haven't been back for a long time. So and not to say it isn't still, I have no idea. Um, and it, it was really lovely. And I met fantastic people. I got a good education. I got a lot of exposure. And... I got to be friends with one of the registrars there or one of the MOs there who was in the aviation stuff and they dragged me along and said, well, why don't you do all these courses? So I started doing all the courses because why not? Yeah. I didn't have a particular desire to do anything really than ride my horse and I now I've done this damn medical thing. What am I going to do with it? I don't know. I still hadn't, I still didn't know what to do. One falls around, one likes us. Oh, I like internal medicine. Yeah, I like internal. Then you do something else. Oh, I like that. So where does one go? Were there any rotations that you went through and you were like, okay, I know I don't like that. And you said, okay, I no, don't no, want to pediatrics. do pediatrics. Okay. My ears. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, they, they're scary. Those little things are very scary. Those little babies are scary. And I don't like hurting them. Yeah, I'll tell you, I, just, I know you've got to hurt them to, to help them, but I don't like, I don't like being the baddie to put the needle into them. Anyway, so each to their own. I was listening to um, Dr. Peter Tier. Mm. He has a book called Outlive, and he was saying, you know, there's nowhere in the Hippocratic Oath that it says, you know, we always say first, you know, do no harm, primum non anterior. Mm. But Hippocrates didn't actually say that because he recognized that sometimes you have to hurt a patient yeah. to heal them. You know, in an emergency thoracotomy, you're doing a lot of pain and, and damage to your patient, but you're saving a life. I think harm may be classified in a few ways. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Temporary hurt versus long-term harm. Are <laughs> well, you talking about the patient or the intern doctors? No? <laughs> <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> okay, so so the internship and then um, in those year, those years was the community service. Yeah, we were. I think the second second people that had to do from service. And how did that feel, knowing that you had to do another year of of training? Well, it actually turned out to be a huge amount of fun because I yeah. landed up there. So this is the whole thing. So I landed up having a whole life. And no, one of those things where life converges, if you're open to suggestions, your whole life changes direction. So I started doing these courses, ACLS, PALS, all those type of things. They were life changers for mm. me. I'm like, why did you not teach me this earlier? ACLS was amazing, especially who taught us. Anita Krunewald did the course in the military and she's very good. And so you I, think the emergency medicine bit, uh, bug bit back then? Well, I landed up in, in the Air Force. Well, no, so, so the, I landed up doing these courses, the flight medical attendant, the aviation medical examiner. And then I landed up in my comm service because I had all these courses. I said, well, will you stay and join the Air Force as a civilian and we'll base you at Waterloo and you can do the aviation medicine thing. And I'm like, wow. 
that sounds great. Yeah. So here started a whole new opening. So I had a very different sort of comm service experience than most people have. So I was most of comm service in some form of aircraft, doing aviation medicine, doing medicals, being deployed to aviation bases. And it put all of that together. And then marvelous stories. And I had a wonderful time. It was so much fun. Mm. This is unfortunately a public uh, podcast. podcast. So <laughs> I can't go into too much detail into all the fun we had. But it was amazing. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot about base management of emergency medicine management as well. Um, working up emergency plans. Yeah. All sorts of other over and above just the plain medicine. Lots of experience. So... Did it take you to other places and did, locations? Yeah. Yeah. I was deployed all over the place, did all sorts of different types of stuff on these deployments. I know you're not allowed to say mm. too much, but uh, do you have any fun adventure stories or a life that you saved or anything that you're like, wow, we really actually did something really tremendous there? Oh, no, plenty, plenty. There, but there were a lot of those stories. And it didn't just stop there because now I was in this aviation-based thing. So at the end of comm service, it was a natural progression to stay in it. So I did. I worked, went and worked for International SAS full time. And I worked on various HEM services, various sure. that were around the helicopter-based services. And some amazing stories and adventures. They really are. I still will write a book and make a TV series out of them because it was lots of fun. And I did that for, for many years, um, which is quite different. So what was the, for you, the difference being in that setting versus what we would see in the wards and the clinical medicine that you saw during your internship years? What was the biggest distinction? I mean, obviously, besides the altitude, was the biggest difference between that kind of medicine and what you practice in the hospital? Well, it's a whole different speciality. I mean, like, for instance... That's a, that's a very, I mean, it, it's so different. I can't even compare the two. Whereas okay. you guys were we doing, are, yeah. you guys were doing clinics and yeah. wards and yeah. all those type of things. And we're seeing 50 patients in a day, you might have five. Well, I was flying off. I mean, I was deployed to do things like entrance and exit medicals for the Air Force, which is sure. slightly more. Which is the clinic of. A type of clinic. <laughs> but the people aren't sick. It's whether, whether they are fit to serve sure. in the Air Force or not. And then, um, I did my, my type of clinic would be seeing the aviation crew, mm-hmm. so the pilots and their medicals, mm-hmm. doing their medicals or treating them to see if they're fit to fly, threatening them with a little pink ticket, which... <laughs> <laughs> You've been grounded. You're grounded. It's amazing what you can get done if you threaten a pilot with that pink ticket. They sure. like will do anything. <laughs> uh, and then being deployed to the Air Force base, which is also family medicine because the bases have their families there, and then you do the normal wow. family medicine as well. Yeah. But very different. I mean, obviously, clearly a very different thing to the average state hospital that most people do. Where I'm going with this line of questioning is there might be a junior doctor who, even after doing internship in CompServe, yeah. is still saying, you know, there's still something about this life that I'm not really finding in the hospital. Um, or there might be somebody who's interested in emergency medicine and wants to fly, but doesn't have anyone that they can really ask, what's it about? What, so what would you say um, is the big draw? Or, or if you were to kind of design your, your perfect emergency medicine physician who's going to fly on the planes. What do they need to be like in their personal attributes and their personality and the way that they think and the way they view the world? And what would be a limiting factor where you say, do you know what, if this is important to you, then you maybe shouldn't go down this road. If you want any form of normal routine life, don't do that. 
okay. is you get called to be away indefinitely at any stage. So if you were to go, so for instance, we go fetch patients in Nigeria. That's a very long turnaround time. And sometimes things go wrong wherever you are and it can extend it. So they mm. can be very long missions. So if you like in sort of a regular routine life, not, not for you. I think if you are willing to, or if you enjoy working in a team, because the teamwork between the pilots, the paramedics or nurses, there's the, the very specialized nurses that fly and yourself, it's incredible that that is a real bond and you get yourself through some very sticky situations, like very sticky situations, because you work so well together. Sure. And that's a really nice thing. There's, there's very little hierarchy involved. I mean, I've never said, well, I'm the doctor, you do this. Mm. I've never thought of it because the guys are so qualified. They're amazing. It's a team discussion and a dynamic all the time, which is which is lovely. And it's just something different. You you go all over the place. I think it looks a lot more glamorous than it actually is. <laughs> you don't get to bath for a really long time. You get out in really hot African places and you sweat. And, and it depends on, you never know what you're going to get. So if you like surprises, mm -hmm. this is really great because you'll be activated to go fetch a patient with, a slip disc in Nigeria. Um, Would they really fly somebody out with like a minor? I'm going to say it's, minor. It's all about money. <laughs> oh, really? It all oh. comes down to money. Somebody stubs their toe, but they've got the money. They can so get a plane to So if it's a major CEO yeah. of one of those oil companies that's on those rigs and they have them, then yes, the answer is yes. Wow. And then you'll get, but the point is you get you get sent for a slip disc and you arrive there and you get a full-on psychotic patient. Oh, yeah. So you never know what you're going to get. Or it's like, yeah, they've got a bit of a headache, and they're not, but they're stable. And you get then this completely unstable patient with cerebral malaria and bilateral pneumonia sure. that's crashing. And you know, you're on the causeway there. You have to recess on the apron, on the tarmac. You know that that's where you're doing it. To what extent um, are language barriers and the politics and bureaucracy in 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 Africa? To what extent are they a limiting factor in your work, or is that are you kind of immune from that because you? the doctor and you're in a plane? I must say in general, a mercy flight is treated with with a lot of sort of respect. And they, in general, I speak in general, they make exceptions for their mercy flights. Also, I've worked for really reputable companies and, you know, with, with international SOS who have um, immaculate planning and mm. systems set up everywhere. So they are really, and they do a brilliant job and they consummate professionals and working out the flight plans and getting permissions and all the rest. And then and most most places accommodate you and let you in and out the side gate and sure. they're, they're really sweet in general. Yeah. And do you know uh, any languages outside of your own from from their experience in your travels? Have you learned French? Have you learned <laughs> Pigeon? I think one learns a little bit of a smattering wherever you go. There's Portuguese, there's French, there's yeah. um, German. So one, one learns smatterings of wherever one goes. But there's usually something like SOS has always got somebody employed that's, that is a translator to some degree. So it's always managed well. So the learning point for anyone listening is uh, the reputation of who you work for is important. Yes. And that through the perks and the perils and the pitfalls of this adventure, um, you know, you kind of just need to know that this is still medicine and you are saving lives. And that's still very honorable. And it's, it's difficult medicine, though, because you don't have everything you need. And, you know, you're either on the apron there in sweltering heat or torrential rain trying to figure out what's happening with the patient without all your special investigation. So this is where your clinical skills yes. are really, really important. 
as well as your understanding of the potential consequences. So if somebody has had quite a bad smash up and they've clearly got a collarbone or you know, a clavicle that's fractured and there's clearly chest injuries involved, you're going to put in bilateral chest strains before you put them into the aeroplane because yeah. it's about thinking things through. Yeah. Because once you're in that aeroplane and you're up high, most of your senses are knocked out. It's dark, it's small, you can't hear. The stethoscope is useless because of the vibrations and the noise. Sure. You can't feel because of the vibration. As I say, tight, tight little spaces. So a lot of your senses are knocked out. So it's about planning. So you need to know already, like, you know, what is the worst that can happen? If you have any doubt, you literally package a patient to be 100% safe on that flight. And if that means intubating them, ventilating them, doing the whole, putting them in the chest drains, just even precautionary measures. If it's clinically warranted, then you do that. Obviously, you don't want to do more than you have to, so it's a line. But it's it's definitely a specialized type of medicine that one gets, you, one gets trained in and, and you have amazing people that are highly qualified with years of experience that, that do guide you in the beginning. Hmm. I, I had some of the most amazing paramedics and flight nurses that sort of very gently in the beginning <laughs> nudged me along the way. And I'm always grateful to them because I think they were my biggest teachers and my biggest mentors. Yeah, I think even uh, even intern doctors listening to this need to just be reminded that you know, you're know you visiting a rotation for a couple of months yeah. to work with nurses who many times have worked in a unit for even decades. Oh. And so they have, even though they don't have the degree, they yeah, have the looming good. They're the best. Yeah. <laughs> Make friends with your nurses. Take them cake. And your paramedics. They're amazing. They're amazing. They're incredible humans with the biggest hearts. I don't know how they keep having their big hearts. They're yeah. incredible. Yeah, because oftentimes you know, they are the first people to the scene. Mm. They get to see the horror. Yeah. And we, we get a patient that's already got lines up, that's already intubated sometimes. And, and we've spared the collateral. We've spared the scene. Mm. And they have seen everything going on. So, Prof. Georgie, what... Um, took you away from emergency medicine then? What was your exit strategy for aviation medicine? That's a good question because I really did enjoy it, but one gets tired. I think there is a there is a lifespan of doing it. I think I did it more than most. I think I did it for eight or nine years. So it's quite a long time to be up in the air. Can you define what you mean tired? Was it a physical tiredness? Was it an emotional tiredness? It's both, and you can't plan your life so well. I mean, one time when you were on call almost all the time, Mm-hmm. I just started having my hair done and halfway through half my hair was wet. The phone rang and I'm like, I've got to go. <laughs> so oh, wow. when, when simple things like to be able to make an appointment and know yeah. you'll get there. So it's, it's little things like that. Yeah. Did you feel, did you feel like that was a season that you had given your best to and now you just wanted a little bit of a different season? Well, even more so, I actually just, I've always been an academic at heart. I've really loved academia. I love the theory of medicine and how it works incredibly well I mean I, re- I love it it's um, more than anything and I've always sort of known I was always going to get back into academia I just didn't know how I was going to get back into academia mm-hmm. I didn't want to be 50 or have little kids and having to be there are lots of people that do I didn't want it, it was for mm-hmm. me not the right thing and also it doesn't pay terribly well so it's something that people do out of love but um, it, it's not hugely sustainable for a long-term thing. So I decided I needed to try to get back into de- academia, which was always actually the long-term plan. Yes. So if I'm doing my BSc, it was always to try and get back into academia. And I just so now the question was, did you phone student. the prof back and say, hey, is that master's post? <laughs> <laughs> so I actually decided 
um a good way to go would be chemical pathology because okay. i i love I, I as you can clearly see i'm more like the more physiology side of things more than the anatomy things we all have our our predisposition to which ones we like now i know obviously the definition of anatomy and the definition of physiology mm. and anatomy is what things look like and what they're named and physiology is how they actually work mm. but if you were to explain to more educated to a, to a doctor who's now going to go into postgraduate studies what is it like to do postgraduate studies in anatomy versus postgraduate studies in physiology because to my mind the human body hasn't changed in the last 300 years mm -hmm. so are there still new things to discover in anatomy why are people doing phds in anatomy or have we kind of learned everything is to know about the body no, I don't think we'll ever learn everything we need to know about the body. That's the amazing thing about it. The more we know, the more we know what we don't know, in a way. Mm -hmm. So I think knowledge begets knowledge, and the more you know, the more questions there are. So I think it's a fantastic thing. Yeah. But as to your question as to what the difference between anatomy and physiology, would it be the difference between a physician and a surgeon? Sure. Essentially. So okay. one is more linear and sort of this is... You know, very linear, there it is, it's defined, that's how it is. Whereas physiology is a little bit more lateral thinking and how things work and interact with each other and this possibility and that possibility. So it's a lot more nebulous. So it just yeah, depends it, on which aspect of the brain is dominant for you. If I understand where you're going and to kind of reframe that, with physiology, you're often dealing with concepts and you're dealing with things that you can't necessarily see. Mm, there we go, that's a good way of putting it, yeah. You obviously went into some kind of a postgraduate qualification with physiology were you still working in medicine what was what were you doing at the time well I, I got accepted into chemical pathology at FITS and it was I don't know how personal I'm allowed to be on this podcast as like, personal as you want to be it was it was the most horrific experience it was absolutely dreadful I was cheated like a prisoner I had to write on a board when I had to go to the toilet I was boxed into this yellow room and police it was a hor horrible experience and uh, the level of academic um, input was not very good. So I got, I did primaries, I passed primaries, I got to the end of my second year and I decided that I, I just couldn't do this anymore. It was absolutely, and I'm not a quitter, I'm one of those mm. people that have now started something, I shall finish it. And I decided it wasn't worth it and then this position came up at the University of Pretoria, which is the lecturer in physiology and my prof is amazing. He just put this big fight up and said, we need her. And <laughs> um, they somehow, I, I never thought they'd want me back at UP because I, I wasn't the easiest student. <laughs> we had some run-ins with some of the big shots there. And I started my job there and it was, I think, the best six working years of my life. It was really incredible. He he just got me and and I, and then anyway, then, then I started lecturing and then I got back into science. So all the way back mm. from where I left off, you, to answer your question, I started with that MSc. <laughs> Took my MSc in the lab, pre-hospital cancer, th so cell culture and those type of things, and wow, all the things really, really going all the way back. All to the way your back, roots. circling yeah. all the way back. And, did that MSc? And time-wise, was that like a twenty-year um, sure. round trip? I haven't. It was probably no, not quite, not quite, but it was about a fifteen, sixteen-year round trip. Yeah, it was sure. Which is quite a long. I was still flying when yeah. I was. <laughs> I never stopped flying, so I carried on doing the emergency medicine for a long time. So I was still flying part time um, weekends, those type of things. Still doing casualty work, those type of things, just to keep my hand in clinically because I, 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 
when it ends up having this sort of love-hate, well, I had this love-hate relationship with medicine that I'm so reluctant to do. I love it, mm -hmm. but then I don't, but I'm not willing to give it up because I do love it. <laughs> so it's this love-hate relationship that pulls me all the time. Um, so then, yeah, landed up at the university, did that master's, which then led to a PhD. And so, yeah, and then I think two or three years ago, I'm an associate professor. And probably Congrats. next year going for the full professorship. That's awesome. And um, I really enjoy teaching the next generation. And hopefully, there have been so many, there have been a few impactful things that have shaped my life to such a degree. And, and one of them was that, that lecturer in my final year of BSc who taught me how to think. Mm. And that was hard. And if I can just help some students to cross that divide it's such a big difference to your life and your capacity as a person to allow you to carry on thinking to carry on exploring to not accept status quo because everything we know now is likely to change if we look at history everything we thought we knew at a time has changed and it's the progressive people so i think it's oscar wilde that says um the reasonable person adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable person expects the world to adapt to them. It therefore goes to show that all change depends on the unreasonable person. Sure. So initially when gets you listen to that and you think, well, I'm not sure about it. But if you think about all the progressors that have made the biggest changes in life, the guy that said, hey, actually, here's gravity or actually the world is round, mm. um, which are monumental things along the way. The, you look at the history, I forget the guy's name, that was about washing hands. Uh, how, Lister. How, no, Lister. even before that, before him, before him, it was there, and, and he, it was the, <laughs> the orthopedic surgeon that was, uh, not orthopedic, the, the obstetrician. That's Simmelweis, yeah. Simmelweis, there we go, Simmelweis. Yeah. He was doing dissections in the morning, and, and then the ladies And how he was ostracized. Have you read the story? And how he was ostracized and thrown yeah. out of med school because he said, we need to wash our hands. Yeah. Simple things. Yeah. Yet monumentally changing and those changing things is never easy and that is what's so important in it's not to accept status quo not to accept oh but the authorities have said so no you've got to carry on thinking carry on reaching carrying on trying to change the system if it's wrong don't 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 subjugate yourself to it yeah and that that is what makes great people and that changes the world not that you always get the recognition for it, unfortunately, but if you want to make a difference, that's how one makes a difference. Speaking of not getting the recognition you deserve, I think it's helpful for the junior doctors and medical students listening to this podcast to understand what goes into the process of becoming a professor. Because it's so easy for people to say, oh, that professor, you know, mm. but they don't appreciate the road that that person has gone through. Mm. So what does it take to become a professor to earn that title? We know what it takes to become a doctor. We know what it takes <laughs> to do. specialize. Yeah. What does it take to become a professor? So one needs that in general. So it's slightly different in medicine compared to the other tracks. Other tracks, you'll definitely need a PhD. You need your master's and your PhD. And then after your PhD, there's a whole long list of things that one needs to do. So you need to have postgraduate supervision successfully to PhD level. So you've supervised other people to get their yes, PhD. Exactly. So you need masters and PhD supervisions to a certain amount. You need a certain amount of 
internationally recognized um, good quality scientific publications. There's a, there's a certain amount of those, depending on the university. Then you need to be show some sort of, be able to show that you are an expert in your field on an international level. Mm. So if you, you've published in international journals, you're on international boards, you have given your presentation or your science to international audiences, you've been invited as visiting professors to come and share your knowledge. So those type of things are quite essential. Then as well, they look at your other input into the university. Do you help run the university? What other boards are you on? So it's quite a composite thing. And most universities in South Africa still are, have quite a high standard and the selection criteria, the application gets sent to various overseas institutions who will measure you on that. So it's 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 quite a big thing, as it yeah. should be. Yeah. Medicine is slightly different in that we have our specialists that are really, really good. So they don't necessarily have to have their PhD. If they can show the rest, sometimes that gets um, wavered. So, yeah. Interesting. I imagine you could go back to young you mm. who wanted to do journalism and didn't want anything to do with medicine and now tell her i'm about to go for prof <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know right takes a long long way around well i sometimes sit and write my um articles which then gets published and i think well in a way i am a journalist <laughs> <laughs> and then i stand in front of an international audience like give my my pictures and my yeah. tea and i think well in a way i'm doing drama <laughs> and um I am slightly different to other scientists. I, I when we go on those international stages, there's usually a lot more drama and stories involved, and that's just you know, one has to stay being oneself. So, yeah. I really appreciate where you've taken us in this conversation and and through some of your your highs. But let me just ask you about some of the lows and if you have any regrets. One always has lows, and that's a life. So, um, that's a good question. Do I have regrets? I have a few, but too few to mention, as Frank Sinatra will say. <laughs> Very well said. Yeah. We're coming towards the end of this podcast mm. interview. Thank you so much for your time. But if you were to give us a kind of closing thought or something that you think is important for junior doctors and medical students to hear, just to kind of condense your 20 years of experience into a couple of lines, is there anything that you'd like to pass on? I just want to say, take your time. Take the pressure off yourself to think you should have it figured out I don't think many of us have figured it out there are a lot of specialists out there that seem to have it all worked out you know they had their game they went through school they got into medicine in medicine they were already planning their specialization they had five papers published by the time they were in sixth year and they had their positions set up and they'd written their primaries in their first years of internship and they all seem to be terribly organized and they've gone on to have very successful inter international careers and that is that is amazing and that's superb, but it's the vast minority of us. Most of us need a little bit of time to figure ourselves out, and it's okay to take that time. You don't have to have it all worked out. And if you're somewhere where you don't think you belong or actually don't really like it, it's okay. Then look for the right place and take the time to look for the right place. Don't be afraid to change because mm. of what anybody says or your I think our worst enemies are the pressure we put on ourselves as doctors, as our type of personalities. So that is the first thing I want to say. Take take a breath. It's going to be okay. It's all going to work out. You're going to find your niche, and that's going to be great. And it doesn't matter on the timeline of things. It really doesn't matter. 
And then the other thing I want to say is you need to hold on to yourself and what you find um, dear to yourself or what, what your defining principles are. So what is that makes your integrity? Because sure. somewhere along the line, we get so tired and we get so overwhelmed and we get a little bit lost in this this post-call, call, post-call rut and we get really deer in headlights at some stage and then we start losing things like our integrity, um, caring, like this is patience, these are people. Yeah. And it's a protective mechanism, don't get me wrong, there's no judgment. I've seen hundreds of young, bright-eyed students that want to help people and change the world and we all get there. At some stage or another, we get overwhelmed, we get exhausted, and we start distancing ourselves. And at that stage, you need to have the courage to say, take a step back and say, hold on, this is not who I am. This is not why I went into medicine. What am I going to change in my life mm. to get back to me? Mm. And by, you know, that integrous person that cares, and and that, that that's important. And to be able to do that, you also need to remember the people that support you. So your family, your friends, and bless them. I mean, I, they're still there and I don't know how because I've worked so hard and we have so little time to put into them that those that are still there after 20 years, I am so grateful to those people, but I haven't done right by them over the years hmm. um, because I just got pulled into the, the medical um right that we get ourselves into these never-ending shifts the the lack of sleep the exhaustion yeah and like yeah. you said sometimes you you have an appointment and you just get on call and off you have to go yeah and and keep doing the stuff that feeds your soul no matter what even if it's a little bit of time a day if there's something so for me it's been my horse riding and by hook or by crook i've somehow hung on to a horse over these years <laughs> And sometimes for more and sometimes for less, depending what it is, but it's it's what puts back into me that I can carry on giving, and that's important to find. And I think the final thing is, as I've mentioned, question everything. Think about everything. Do not take anything for granted. If you take see things at face value, you need to look into it. If you don't understand it, look into it, but mm. question everything because we have snapshots of what we know now. And that might change. You know, things are rapidly advancing. You asked a question about mm. genetics and yeah. uh, CRISPR and things yes. like that. Yes. And that's a reality now, whereas yeah. 20 years ago that was science fiction. Oh, you're going to clone the perfect human, <laughs> if I can. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm really yeah. joking. Yeah. Uh, but, but the point is that carry on thinking through things. Don't take things at face value. Remember the core values of patience and freedom, autonomy, those type of things. It's important, and those can get very blurred in um, our field, and it's so important that we, we stick to them and then try and create better systems than what we have. I think that would be it. Carry on trying to be the best version of yourself. <laughs> very good. Thank you very much, Prof. Georgie Mercia. We thank you so much for your time, and thank you for your wisdom on this podcast. Well, that's it for this week's episode. 
Thank you for listening and I hope you were educated, motivated and inspired by our conversation. Once again, I'd like to remind you that the show notes for this episode include links to all the resources mentioned at the introduction, such as the Wardworks link tree and the Google form to complete if you'd like to collaborate with the Dr. Coffee podcast on your upcoming projects. As always, if you have feedback on this episode, please get in touch and send us an email to drcoffeeza at gmail.com. That's drcoffeeza with no punctuation marks. Thank you for your support.